Well, you beautiful people, hope that you had a blessed time over the last week, whatever you were able to do for Thanksgiving with whomever you were able to gather. And over the next few weeks, I hope that you have another rich blessing. Our Joshua series ended last Sunday and today we're beginning an eight part series where we're trying to cover in that series of sermons, the entire Bible. So today we'll start at the beginning and hopefully by January the 15th, if the Lord wills, we'll take some big chunks of the Bible and try to do one big sweeping overview series of the whole of scripture. And I'm going to tell you now what the goal is every week and in the whole umbrella over all the weeks to see that this is one book with one author, primarily about one person and the salvation God has provided for his people in him. The title of the eight part series is Seeing God's Story. History, not just biblical history, but all history is really his story. Scripture is a book about the one true God and what he's done in Christ for the salvation of his people. Nothing, well, I don't, I don't want to overstate it. Very few things have been a greater blessing to my walk with Jesus over the last about 20 years. That's not the whole of my walk with Jesus. I was pretty biblically illiterate. I had a hard time even finding the books of the Bible right at the beginning, but for the last 20 years, few things, if anything, has been a greater blessing to my walk with Christ than a repeat effort of trying to see the whole Bible through a Christ-centered lens, trying to see its whole meta-narrative, to try in just a flash to go from the beginning to the end, and to do that over and over again, a Christ-centered lens of the Bible, a Christ-centered interpretation, a Christ-centered hermeneutic to see how it's all pointing to him and revealing God's glory to us in his son. I would say the more we know the word of God, and especially the more we know the God of the word, the more that word becomes a verse we can almost all say, a lamp to our feet a light to our path. That's Psalm 119, 105. Literally the day-to-day, moment-by-moment walk of our life is illumined by his word. The deeper we try to go in his word and see our life through the lens of it. Let me say all that another way. No matter where you're at right now, what struggles and challenges you have, and trust me, there's a lot of struggle represented in this room. There's a lot of hardship, a lot of challenge. There's some people who are struggling, maybe even with your faith, where you're at with the Lord ultimately. The water level of our daily trust in Christ, our confidence in his good purposes, rises in the moment by moment stuff of life. The more our minds and our hearts are immersed in the Jesus exalting cross-shaped hallways of scripture. If you live your life in that cross-shaped hallway of scripture, your trust in the Lord rises. So here's what I want to do. 
as we begin this eight-part series, I want to ask you to try to put the whole Bible together in as few words as you can in your heart and mind now. If I said I want to hear your 30-second summary of the Bible, and after you're done with that, I want to hear your three-minute summary of the Bible, and after that, maybe your 30-minute story of the Bible or your three-hour version of the Bible, that's what we're going to try to do together over the next few weeks because we want our trust in the God of the Word to rise in the daily details of life. Your ability to see and say the whole story of the Bible will help your moment-by-moment walk with the Lord. My favorite whole Bible summary, this is like my 10-second version, remains our church's vision statement. We exist to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy. I think that's not the, but a faithful way to summarize the story of the whole Bible because there's something beneath it. I believe that's what God is up to. I believe that the Bible reveals that the God of the Bible is about the glory of God. And the way he goes about glorifying himself is enjoying the fullness of his glory by the power of the spirit in his son. He glorifies himself by treasuring his son. And as he treasures his son, he is delighted to spread his eternal joy with his creatures. So glorifying God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading his eternal joy is not meant to be cliche or trendy. It's meant to be a summation of the whole of scripture. That's a one phrase summary of the whole Bible. It takes about 10 seconds or less to say it. Another way to summarize the whole Bible could be a series of thematically connected words. Many have made an effort to try to squeeze the Bible down into a series of connected words. Let me give you three examples of four words. God, man, sin, salvation. That's the story of the whole Bible And Richard Owen Roberts has written uh, a lot on that and has helped us at Grace Church to see that's the story of the Bible. There's one God. We are created in his image. We have sinned against him. He has provided salvation in his son. God, man, sin, salvation. Mark Dever has another four word way of summarizing the whole Bible. God, man, Christ response. The same too at the beginning, there's one God, we're made in his image. We've rebelled against him, so he sent the Christ, the Messiah, and the right response to him, God demands it, he requires it. He doesn't suggest it. In fact, there's no other way to know him unless you respond rightly, that is repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn to God, trust yourself to Christ. God, man, Christ response. It takes Two and a half seconds to say that summary of the whole Bible. Uh, Tim Keller has popularized an an old four-word summary of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The creator and his creation, the fall of man into sin, redemption in Christ, 
the coming future restoration, which our Lord's Supper will partake again today, reminds us of that the King of the kingdom is coming back again to restore all things and make them right. So glorify treasure spread. That took me one second. God, man, sin, salvation, second and a half. Can you summarize the whole story of the Bible? Can you see the whole and its parts? And can you say what you see? Another way of summarizing the story of the Bible can be done by looking at various epochs, E-P-O-C-H-S, epochs, series of uh, uh, seasons of, of history and look at them through the lifetimes of the major human characters that God has been pleased to use in the story of the Bible. And to see through the mountain peaks of those human lives, God carrying out his eternal plan of redemption and seeing how the person and the gospel labor of Jesus is revealed in each epoch. Let me give you a nine bullet point list of the whole Bible. Beginning with the creator and his creation, the Bible in no uncertain terms makes clear that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, made it all. Number two, our first parents, Adam and Eve, actually reveal to us the true man, the Lord Jesus, made clear in the New Testament as the second Adam, the true humanity. The third point, Abraham, who Jesus said, 2,000 years before Jesus was born, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So creation and Adam and Eve and Abraham revealed to us something about the person and work of Jesus. The fourth one, Moses, Jesus told us that 1,500 years before Jesus was born, Moses wrote about Jesus and the author of Hebrews says he left Egypt because he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So the creator and our first parents and Abraham and Moses, the New Testament says they all point us to Jesus. David, Peter told a group of thousands of people in the book of Acts, that David, a thousand years before Jesus was born, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, Acts 2.31. The prophets who lived from a thousand to about 500 years before Jesus was born, Peter said in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' living room, all the prophets bear witness to him that there is forgiveness through faith in his name. The incarnation when Christ came, Emmanuel, God with us, the church age, that's where we now live where Jesus is being revealed in and through his people and he's dwelling in a covenant special way with his New Testament churches and then finally the consummation. So we could go creation, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, prophets, incarnation, church age, consummation when he comes back and he makes everything right. Well, that's a nine bullet point way to summarize the whole Bible. So glorify treasure spread, one second. God, man, Christ response, a second and a half. Creation, Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, prophets, incarnation, church age, consummation, about five seconds. I want you to see the whole Bible. It will raise the water level of your trust in the God of the word if you can see the whole story and how it all points to Jesus. 
a longer way to do the same thing. And some of you may not be fam as familiar with these parts of the story, which is exactly uh, precisely why I'm about to do this. I did this at our members meeting a couple months ago in this room in October as a prelude to this moment in this sermon where I intended to do it again. The whole Bible in 45 words and the reason we're calling this series Seeing God's Story, Seeing His Story, Seeing History, it's His Story. Be able to let the melody of God's story cause your heart to rejoice in Him. Here's 45 consonants sounding words, all C words. Creator, see if you can see the story of the Bible in these 45 words. Creator, creation, corruption, curse, covenant, clothing, carnage, catastrophe, covenant, confusion. All of that is today's sermon. Calling, circumcision, child, covenant, choice, custody, kingship, unconsumed, crying, crossing, calories, commandment, camping, cloud, crossing, collapse, conquest, Canaan, king, capital, kingdoms, captivities, construction, covenant, quiet, Christ, consecration, compassion, cross, cave, conqueror, commission, church, courtroom, communion, condemnation, consummation. That's the story of the Bible in 45 words. So whether it's one phrase or four words or nine bullet points or 45 words, I'm simply trying to testify to a 20 year journey that has yielded rich benefits of an increasingly biblical worldview that happens deep in our souls and in our lives and in our church as we seek to see the whole of scripture in one fell swoop through a Christ-centered lens again and again and again. I commend that exercise to you as a lifelong project. One of my seminary professors now in glory, Dr. Kendall Easley, wrote a masterful overview of the whole Bible the Illustrated Guide to Biblical History, this is it, whose outline we've stolen to serve as the summary of this eight-part sermon series. If you ask Dr. Easley, what's the message of the whole Bible in as few words as you can say it, he would tell you this. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and his glory. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. Dr. Easley's outline of the Bible is eight parts. That's why we have an eight-part sermon series. Today is Genesis 1 to 11, the need for redemption. Lord willing, in the seven weeks to come will be Genesis 12, the second Chronicles 9, God builds his nation. Then second Chronicles 10 through Obadiah, God educates his nation. 
Then concluding the Old Testament, Ezekiel through Malachi, God keeps a faithful remnant. Then the New Testament, Matthew through John, God purchases redemption and installs his king. Then Acts all the way through 3 John, the church age, God spreads his kingdom through the church. Finally, Revelation 1 to 20, God consummates his kingdom. In Revelation 21 and 22, the new heaven and new earth. That's an eight part outline of the whole Bible that we will use to walk our way through the hallways of scripture. It's cross shaped hallway so that we can see Jesus as God has revealed him. Well, we won't have an introduction like that every week, but I hope that it primes your pump to want to see the Bible and be able to say what it reveals so that our life can trust its author. Our sermon text for today is Genesis 1.1. Hear the word of the living God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, show us who you are. And in the opening 11 chapters, the prologue of your love letter, show us what you're like. Show us what you meant for us to be and how we have so drastically fallen in our rebellion and sin. Show us your great heart of love, your covenant promises. And now you have continued to carry out those promises faithfully in your son. Teach us your word. Stamp it on the back of our eyeballs. Cause us to bleed Bible. Teach us to be men and women of the book. Cause the boys and girls of this church to think that it's normal growing up in a biblically saturated home. God, cause our souls to get wrinkled from taking a long, long sit in the scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I want to walk us through the foyer of the Bible. When you open the front door and you step into it, you find yourself in the first 11 chapters, which is why a few years ago, the small group ministry of this church went through Genesis 1 through 11 in our Teleos Academy small group Bible studies. The foyer, the entryway to the Bible, it's 11 chapters long. It's the story of the beginning of everything except God. The first 11 chapters of the Bible are absolutely essential to understanding the rest of it. These chapters orient us to the one true God. They orient us to his work in the world. In fact, every theme from chapter 12 of the Bible to the end can be traced back to the first 11 chapters. These chapters are why John Milton titled his famous 10,000 verse 17th century poem, Paradise Lost. Genesis 1 to 11 is the story of the beginning, how good it was and what went so horrifically wrong. 
Our sermon title, Stealing Dr. Easley's Outline, Genesis 1 to 11, The Need for Redemption. We'll look at those 11 chapters under eight headings. I'll warn you at the beginning so you don't get scared toward the end. The first two are the biggest, longest points. When I gave you the four word outline of the Bible from those three different personalities, all four of them summarized the whole, all three of them summarized the whole Bible in four words and all three of them used two of their words for the first three chapters of the Bible. There's a reason. The first point, Genesis chapters one and two, the creator and his creation. The creator and his creation. The reason we read the first verse of the Bible as our sermon text for today is because if you don't believe that verse, you will not believe the rest of what it says. Two aspects of the first two chapters of the Bible that I want to draw your attention to today. First, the creator God is triune. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God. In the original, that's Hebrew, it's the name Elohim. That's a plural word, not singular. The subject of the first sentence of the Bible is a God who is unified with himself. The creator God is triune. That's our first consideration under our first point. The name God, Elohim, is found 32 times in the first 31 verses of the Bible. If you heard it read for you in English or in Hebrew, you would hear the metronome strike, God, God, God. But if you heard it in Hebrew, you would hear that plural word. If you read the Bible narcissistically, always looking for yourself, or if you read the Bible, kind of as a hocus pocus magic book, commodifying the God that's in it to your own selfish ends, you will miss the entire point, which is why Derek Kidner, his commentary on Genesis said, the, indeed, the whole Bible is one book about God. To read it with any other primary interest is to misread it altogether. A not so subtle revelation of God in the first verse of the Bible is the form of his name, Elohim, plural. God's triunity becomes more clearly revealed, no doubt, as we continue to read the pages of the Bible, but literally the God who is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible reveals himself as a multi-personed, unified deity in the very first phrase that he uttered to humanity. The triune God is the God of Genesis 1-1. And there is no other God besides him. God's triunity, as I said, does become more explicit as we read the pages of the Bible, but you don't even have to get out of the first chapter. Look at verse 26. In the creation of man, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. To whom is God talking? Yes, himself. We, us, our. One God, three persons. Although the truth of God's Trinitarian nature gets spelled out much more clearly and explicitly 
As scripture continues to unfold, we learn from the very first sentence that the name of God that dominates the first chapter is that God is Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity. The triunity of the creator has to be our first point in this sermon series. I hope that you would stand up and stop me if it wasn't because for us to embrace what is true about creation depends on us embracing something that's true about the creator who made it. We will draw the wrong conclusions if we do not see his triunity. Once we see that the God who is, who has always been, is triune, we immediately can understand something essentially important about the creation that he's made. Namely, he wasn't lonely. He didn't create out of need or deficiency. He was exuberantly happy in his own self-sufficiency before he created the universe. Instead of making everything and everyone and mankind because he was bored and needed companionship, the, the scripture shows us that God made everything because he wanted to invite the universe and especially mankind into joining him in the enjoyment of his own joy in himself. God is triune. That's why I think glorify treasure spread is an okay summary of the Bible. God exists to glorify God. He does so in the treasuring of his son and praise his name. He's delighted to spread that joy to us. But as we look at the creator, we see not only is he triune, but as we continue to read the pages of scripture, what do we find? God has made explicitly clear that it wasn't just a generic God out there who made all this. The triune God was purposed, was pleased for the second person of the Trinity to be the agent of creation. We find in the New Testament in John chapter one, verse three, that everything came into being through Jesus and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We find in the book of Colossians, for through him, that's Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Revelation four says the angels are praising the enthroned Jesus right now because you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Jesus made it all. The Bible is clear. The very one who had come into creation as a man to redeem fallen mankind is the very same one who made the world and all it contains. The second consideration under our first point, the creator and his creation, is that the creator has ordered creation in the aspects of form and fullness. He's created territories and given them rulers. Genesis one, God made everything and said it was good and very good. But on days one to three, he made the form. Days four to six, he gave them fullness. The territories are made on one to three and the rulers of those various spheres are placed in their domains on days four to six. If you're still in Genesis one, you can look at the end of all of these verses. Verse five, the end of it, one day. Verse eight, a second day. 
Verse 13, a third day. Verse 19, a fourth day. Verse 23, a fifth day. Verse 31, a sixth day. But what we find as we look at those days of creation is day one, two, and three, he made the expanse on day one and the light. On day two, he made the sea and the sky. Day three, he made the land, also the plants. But then on day four, he filled the territory of day one, the expanse with the sun, the moon, and the stars. What he made on day two, the sea and the sky, he filled it with fish and with birds. Day three, the space he made, the land, he filled it with animals and with humans, its form and fullness. And I want to say one thing about a sermon that's coming immediately after this series. I told you this series will be eight parts. What's happening the ninth week? January 22nd, 2023, Lord willing, the first sermon after this eight-part series will be a one standalone sermon from Pastor Nathan, invite every young person you know. It's a sermon on the burden and the bliss of being human. We live in a day when a basic biblical anthropology, understanding of man, mankind, what are we, is under severe attack. What are you? We so desperately want to show the precious people of this church and of the city from God's word that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by a good and loving creator who knows what is best for you. He's not trying to hold out on you. Same lie that the serpent gave to Eve. He's not trying to hold out on you. He does know what's best for you. And the cross is the proof positive that the God who made you also is delighted to give you the satisfaction that your heart craves, which is found only in a love relationship with the Lord Jesus. So as we continue the creation narrative, we find the accent falls on the seventh day as the most significant of them all. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their host by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. We've asked the why question a lot at Grace Church over our 16 year existence, meaning why did he rest on the seventh day? I pray that we'll ask it a lot more times because it's so vitally important to answer. Just like he didn't create because he was lonely, he was not lonely, he is triune and he is eternal and he is happy in the fellowship of himself. He didn't create because he was needy. He created so that on the seventh day, he could resume doing what he had been doing for all eternity and invite all of creation to join him in the happy much making of God. Why did he rest on the seventh day? Was he fatigued or worn out? Did he need to wipe the sweat from his brow? Was he exhausted? Did he need a breather, take a break? No, the chapter even tells us how he made it all. He just spoke and it was. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So why did he rest? Maybe better, how did he rest? Hebrews 4 says the answer to that question is the basis of our salvation. 
Day seven, Hebrews four, verse 10, the one who has entered into his rest, is that you? Has himself also rested from all his works as God did from his. You have to rest like God rested on day seven in order to have the saving rest that Jesus provides. How did he rest? God was not tired on day seven. Here's how he rested. Here's the salvation Jesus paid for in his own blood so that you could have this rest. How did he rest? And what rest does he offer to you? He invites all creation on day seven and all fallen creation through the cross of Christ to join God in what God had been doing for all eternity before creation existed. That is the happy God-centered delight in God. That's the creator and his creation. That's the first two chapters of your Bible. The second, and I told you long point, numbers one and two is Genesis three, the fall. The creator and his creation, chapter one and two, the fall, chapter three. You've heard it before, but let your eyes fall on verse one of Genesis three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit, fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Verse five, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. There's a really good reason that hundreds and thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of sermons have been preached in Christian churches from those verses. This is the entrance of sin into the world. Theologians and Christians refer to this passage as the fall. This is where things went wrong. This is the moment that caused all people, including you, to be born sinners in need of a savior. Romans in the New Testament says very clearly, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is where it started. Lots of vitally important details contained in this text, but for today, I'm gonna give you two considerations from the fall. First, the pronouns that the serpent used are plural. When he's talking to the woman and she with him, he responds to her, y'all. Verse one, one time, verse four, one time, and verse five, three times. The you and the you are in your Bible are y'all. This seems to indicate that the man was standing right there. He was passively doing nothing. God, you see, in the previous chapter had specifically given the injunctions to the man. 
chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, to be specific, before the woman was created in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. So apparently for this woman to have this conversation with that serpent, the man had to tell her the things that she conveyed to him. And apparently Adam conveyed to his wife because she knew enough of the divine orders when the serpent began talking to her, albeit she foolishly added her own words to what God had said. But the point is the man was there and he had heard the creator give the sanctions about what to eat and what not to eat. And he passively did nothing as the whole world plummeted into ruin through their sin. The second thing I want to say about Genesis one to three is that really that's the section break of your Bible. There are two parts to the Bible. Yes, you could say Old Testament, New Testament. But really, there's only two chapters to the Bible. Genesis 1 to 3 and everything else. The fall changed everything. Reflect on the, reflecting on the effects of the curse of Genesis 3, the New Testament writers say some very sobering things. The Apostle John says when he thought about Genesis 3, the whole world now lies under the power of the evil one. Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, once sin entered the world, quote, the whole creation was subjected to futility. The Bible is crystal clear that death exists because of what happened in Genesis 3 when our first parent sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, by a man came death. The Bible is also clear that another man, a true human, the second Adam, the true man, the son of God, reversed the curse by destroying the devil by his own death as a means of procuring your forgiveness for your crimes against him. First Corinthians 15, 21 makes this clear. For since by a man came death, by a man, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It's the theological truth called federal headship. You're standing in line in God's eyes, either behind the first Adam or the second Adam. And the man at the front of the line determines your standing before God. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Who's your representative? So the first point is the creator and his creation. The second point is the fall. I told you the rest of it is a lot less long. Genesis three, the promise of redemption. The reason the first sermon in this Bible overview series taken Dr. Easley's outline is the need for redemption is because Genesis 3 tells us we need it, but Genesis 3 also begins to show how God had always intended to provide it. Many scholars take the flow of Genesis 3, the way the words work, to mean that it's likely that on the very day Adam and Eve were created, they also fell into sin. And on that very same day before they went to bed at night, God gave them a promise of salvation. It's Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, 
and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he, that's a singular, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. The New Testament picks up on that to tell us unequivocally that's Jesus. Through the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent. After God made that gospel promise, many would say that's the first promise of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, it becomes more clearly unfolded as the Bible continues, but that first promise of the gospel is immediately followed by a picture of the gospel. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That verse is why I believe Adam and Eve are in heaven today. I don't think anybody got to heaven because their name is in the Bible. There's a lot of nefarious people in the Bible whose names are there. I believe they're in heaven today because they believed the promise and then God gave them a picture that they believed it. They had tried to cover themselves in God's sight. You know the story of the fig leaves. But here, God takes a blood sacrifice and covers them by his own initiative. He clothed them. The Lord God made garments, verse 21. It's a picture of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. And I believe what it means to be clothed in his righteousness. When the New Testament authors, I think thinking about this passage, would say things like, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The good news of the gospel is not only that Jesus will take your sin away and make you innocent in his sight like Adam and Eve were, that actually wouldn't save you. See, Jesus didn't die to make you morally neutral, make you a blank slate. He died to make you positively righteous in God's sight. The death of Jesus is really, really good news, not only because he takes your sin away. That's good news, don't mishear me. But it's especially good news because through faith in him and his risen victory over death, he credits to you all of his own righteousness. He clothes you in his righteousness. So when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. That's the good news of the gospel. And there's a promise and a picture of that gospel, I believe, in Genesis 3.15 and 3.21. Being saved by Jesus is better than being innocent in the Garden of Eden. This one you could forfeit. This one you can't cancel. Genesis 3 is the promise of the gospel. Number four, chapters four to six, murder and corruption. This is a terrible story, but it's true. In Genesis chapter four, right after this picture of the gospel, the children of our first parents, Cain and Abel, were at odds with one another because of Cain's sin and Cain rose up, Genesis 4, 8. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Talk about heartbreak in a household. But even then, God was not missing in action. When righteous Abel died, the New Testament tells us that he was a man of faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about Abel's gifts, and through faith, though Abel is dead, he still speaks. God wasn't missing in action. I don't know how to explain this, but I know this is true. God intended to use the death of Abel, the righteous, innocent brother, as a picture 
of his son, our savior, the Lord Jesus, who would be killed by his brethren, although he was perfectly righteous. I know that because the New Testament tells me so. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, verse 24 says, when we get to glory, we will get to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to his sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What does that story teach us? The murder of Abel teaches us that his righteous blood spoke, but Jesus' blood speaks better than Abel's. He's the true, righteous, innocent brother who trusted God by faith and offered the best sacrifice, even in the place of his kinsmen. Not only murder and corruption, you know what happens. Here's Genesis 1 to 11 in a nutshell. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. The next is flood, chapter seven. The situation on earth had gotten totally corrupt. The madness of sinful men was running rampant. Not only had Abel died, you go read chapters four and following and you will hear another metronome. And he died. And he died over and over again. Chapter seven is the flood. It happened because chapter six, verse five tells us that when the Lord looked on earth, all he saw was the wickedness of man being very great and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's what God thought about humanity. The situation was absolutely awful. And God determined because he is holy and righteous and perfectly just to do it. God determined to cleanse the earth of all rebels and to only spare the righteous. The problem for humanity, there was only one man who found that favor in God's sight, righteous Noah. Genesis six tells us the story of God commanding him to build the ark, though it had probably never rained before that day. We get that from Genesis two, where it says, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, verse five. So he tells him to build a gigantic boat. He'll bring all the animals into it. And it probably never rained before. You're all familiar with the account of Noah and the ark and the animals. It's about, it's not about Noah or the ark or the animals. Today, I want to draw out one central application from chapter seven. It's the most obvious one. But if you want your Bible to start making sense, you've got to start to read it through a Christ-centered lens. The Ark of Genesis 7 was the one safe place on planet Earth for humanity to hide from God's just judgment. And once the people and the animals were inside, there's a beautiful verse in chapter 7, it's verse 16. They all entered male and female as God commanded and the Lord closed the door behind them. Who closed it? God did. God set a seal. Once you were in the place of salvation, God saw to it that no danger would intrude. Things though got worse. Once Noah and his family, three sons and their wives and Noah's wife, eight humans got inside the boat with the animals we read some devastating sentences. Chapter seven, verse 22, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. 
God blotted out every living thing. Only Noah was left together with those who were with him in the ark. Again, this is a gospel portrait. It's a powerful foreshadowing of what it looks like for God to put you in his son and do what 1 Thessalonians 1 says. He raised him from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That sounds just like Noah's ark. Jesus is the only safe ark for humanity. When the final flood of God's wrath comes upon the world and he will seal you by his Holy Spirit. You can't lose the salvation Jesus provides because you never gained it to begin with. He grants it to you by giving you to Jesus as a trophy of his grace. If you will but trust him by faith and turn from your sin. There's a worse flood coming on humanity. The flood is coming. God's just judgment is coming. And there's only one safe place to hide from the impending wrath. Next, God makes a covenant. You know the story. Our age has commandeered the beauty of the rainbow, which is God's choice picture to look at, to remember his covenant love for his people. He establishes this covenant for the first time. It's in Genesis 9. Every time he looks upon the rainbow, verse 16 says he remembers his everlasting covenant. This is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh on the earth. I'm not going to destroy you by flood. Again, this is God's promise to God that he's going to preserve his people. At the end of Genesis 9, and this brings us to our very last point. At the end of Genesis 9, there's only eight humans on earth. You may choose not to believe it, but that doesn't make it untrue. Genesis 9 and 10 is the repeopling of the earth. We're all from one family. You either came from Shem and have Uncle Ham and Japheth, or from Ham and have Uncle Shem and Japheth, or from Japheth and have Uncle Shem and Ham. We're all from one family. You came from Noah. You are constitutionally no different than the Buddhist monk in the high Himalaya mountains or the Catholic schoolgirl walking the streets of Bogota this morning or afternoon. You are no different than the tribal leaders deep in the bush of Malawi. All of us came from one family. There's no such thing as interracial marriage because there's only one race, the human race. The beauty of our ethnicities is not to be discounted. Our cultures are precious. The tongues are beautiful, but there's less than one degree of separation between you and any other human who has ever lived. The Bible teaches that we're all from Noah and from his three sons. And the ark we must enter to be saved, our Lord Jesus Christ descended from the line of Shem. And Ephesians 2 says, once you're in that Jesus, he breaks down the barrier of dividing wall between you and your fellow man who's also in Christ. I said that was the last, this is the last. Genesis 11. As that new humanity in the Savior, the church, the place where all peoples are embraced and treated as they truly are, one family in the Lord, we find our way to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Verse 1 says, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Verse 4 says, they were so proud that they said, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and make for ourselves a name. 
The fundamental problem of Genesis 11 is the same problem that every person in this room has had and many may still have. What was the problem of Genesis 11? Man was trying to reach God by his own effort. We've been trying to save ourselves since Genesis chapter 3. And self-effort for human salvation will always incur God's just judgment. That's why God said in Genesis 11, verse 7, let us, there he is again, triune, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad. Verse 9 says, the Lord confused them. Verse 9 says, the Lord scattered them. God will not tolerate any effort for humans to save themselves. Every effort we make to try to help get us out of our sin inflicted damnation only worsens our predicament. High school students, Genesis 11 is the reason why the American school system requires you to take two years of a foreign language to graduate. Genesis 11, God confused the languages. Now, if there was any other way for us to build a tower to heaven, don't you think God would have come up with another idea besides the torture and death of his only begotten son? If there's any other way for you to be saved, you can rest assured God would have baked the bricks for you to build the tower, but he must come down to us, reveal himself to us and build the way all by himself. The Old Testament goes on to elaborate on the challenge of languages all over the place. One of those is in Judges chapter 12 where one tribe was killing another tribe. And the way they found out who the enemies were, were Judges chapter 12, say the word shibboleth. And one tribe knew the other tribe couldn't pronounce it because of language barriers. They couldn't say the sh, S-H. So they said, Sibboleth. And when somebody couldn't pronounce the native tongue, they would kill them. It's actually a really, 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 really powerful picture of the gospel. There is salvation in no one else, the New Testament says, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you can't, I'm not talking about pronounce phonetically. I'm talking about pronounce with the eye of your soul fixed on Jesus through the instrument of faith. If you can't pronounce Jesus Christ is Lord, you can't be saved. The day of Pentecost is the reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel where all peoples and all nations and all tribes heard the one gospel of the one savior for all peoples in the blood of the lamb. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, that shibboleth, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you don't, you will not be saved. Genesis 1 to 11 is the story of beginnings. I truly close with this. One application. Seek to know the story of scripture so that you can understand your own story. You don't even know yourself if you don't know the God who made you. 
I saw Calvin's Institutes, big gigantic tome has been reprinted for 500 years. It has two parts to the outline, knowledge of God, knowledge of yourself. Just like that four part outline, God, man, sin, salvation. If you don't know the God who saves, you can't know anything about the salvation he provides. And you can't know who you are unless you know yourself in light of him. Seek to know the story of scripture and the God who inspired it so that you can understand your own story. Knowing yourself truly does depend on knowing God. Self-awareness is a very elusive animal. You do not know yourself near as well as you think you do. But if you'll fix your eyes on the God who made you and his son, the Lord Jesus, through faith, that you may be saved and united to him, you'll start to understand yourself a whole lot better. Seek to know the story of scripture so that you can understand your own story. How are you going to do that? Take refuge in the cross of Christ from the future flood of his judgment. He's not letting anybody save themselves. Doesn't matter how long you can swim, the flood is too big. It doesn't matter how tall you can build a tower, heaven is too high. Take refuge in the cross of Christ. Not you get to him, he came to you. And the big difference between Christianity and every other religion that has ever been concocted in human history, the big difference between Christianity and all those religions, they all say, you get yourself to him. Christianity says, he came to us. That's the story of the Bible, beginning in Genesis 1 to 11. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I feel like a stumbling, bumbling, incapable explainer of such wonderful things. So I do pray that you would take the truth of your word, plant it deep in our hearts and cause us to know your story so that we can know you, so that we can respond to you rightly and enjoy you as we were created to do. That we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thank you again for your word. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.